Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We all have a story to tell. Hey guys, welcome inside episode 12 of Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We are a podcast that goes beyond the bats to allow members of law enforcement, public safety, and first response a place to tell their stories and talk about the cases that have impacted their lives. Thanks for joining us for what I think will be an episode primed for good discussion. How are you doing? I am Brent Hinson, your uh, co-host of the podcast. Basically, I serve as the hype man for the guy who runs this whole thing. Please welcome in your host, Mr. Michael Warren. How are you doing, Mike? Good. How are you today? Excellent. Excellent as always. Give the listeners a little bit of warning here. Things are a little stormy in Michigan today, so hopefully you don't uh, lose any connection here and uh, we can stay on track with this. I think it's going to be a fantastic episode because I think uh, based on the research I've done on our guest, he's got some uh, some excellent points to make and uh, it's going to be some some good talking points today. Well, you and I have talked about this episode for a few weeks now, and I'm equally as excited. So what can you tell us about our guest today? Our guest today, a veteran of the Louisville Metro Police Department, has got experience as a patrol sergeant and instructor in the advanced training section of the Louisville Metro PD. He uh, was a plainclothes narcotics detective, as well as being on the gang task force in Louisville. He's going to have some very unique insights. I think you guys are going to enjoy this one today. Please welcome Sergeant Justin Witt. How are you, sir? I'm doing well, guys. Thanks for having me on. But, buddy, we couldn't be more excited about this. And just so our listeners know, uh, you and I met at the NAFTO conference, which was in Louisville here uh, a month or so ago. And I had the, the privilege of hearing you speak and what you talked about, man, it hit me hard. And I approached you that night about uh, coming on here because I think the message you have is important for our listeners. So I appreciate you being here today. Yeah, I appreciate you guys having me. It's always an honor to get to talk to different people from around the country. Well, let's start off, first of all, because uh, as our listeners know by now, uh, Mikey has a dork streak that's pretty wide. And one of the things that you talked about that night was that you played a little college baseball and Mikey's a baseball fan. What can you tell me about that? Man, with the All-Star game last night and the Home Run Derby a couple nights ago, I was flying um, back and forth doing some teaching and um, at least um, – American Airlines did have the home run derby on. They canceled my flight a couple times, <laughs> but I was able to catch uh, catch the home run derby in the all-star game. So, yeah, baseball, playing college ball, a unique experience, you know, much like policing, the camaraderie, the the locker room talk, the hazing and going back and forth is, is a lot of what you experience as, as a young police officer, as a recruit. So uh, I guess whenever I came into this profession, I was primed to it from being a freshman in a locker room and now, you know, being a recruit on a police department. So there's a lot of uh, similarities between sports and, you know, what I'm fortunate to do now. Well, now, if memory serves correct, though, your team did something pretty spectacular. What was that? Yeah, we won the national championship 2009. Yeah, so it was it, it was pretty special. Had a good opportunity, you know, around a lot of guys. And a lot of the guys I played with are still bouncing around in the minor leagues and um, have gotten called up and things. So, yeah, it's definitely some friendships that I'll cherish forever. Man, I tell you what, I love hearing good sports stories, but you kind of started from there. And then once you, once you got out of college – uh, what did you do career-wise? Um, straight to the police department. 
you know, um, soon after kicked around, played a little ball, then on to the police department, you know, came in very early. I didn't have anybody in my family that was a police officer. Um, nobody in my family had been to college, so didn't really have that guiding star. My parents were both hardworking people. They're married to this day and, you know, blue collar people in Louisville. So coming back home to Louisville and decided, um, to, um, get on the police department. You know, I enjoyed relationships, building relationships. So decided the police department was a good, good place to do that. The police department is truly a, a, a place where relationships can be built, both good and bad. I mean, if we're honest with each other, but we talked about that camaraderie that we had talked about with the team. And, and you have a lot of that uh, when you come into police work, but once you graduate from the academy, uh, for our listeners who don't know, you have to go through an FTO process, uh, the field training officer process. How was the FTO program for you specifically? It was different. Um, you know, I was I had two senior members of the police department that trained me and both of them were kind of at a stage in their career where good people. They, they, they were both good people. They were both good to talk to, but their policing days um, were behind them. They, they were more so um, ready to retire and re- ready to move into the next chapters of their life. And that's OK. I think that we all get at that point. But because of that, the training aspect of where I was and what it meant to be a police officer for me, it lagged a little bit. Um, and that kind of stuck with me through my entire career until this point now. I, I remember uh, at the conference you telling the story of you make it through FTO. And for, for our listeners who've never done that, when you get off FTO and you get solo patrol, that's a glorious day. Oh, but, yeah. <laughs> but but it's also kind of a scary day, too, isn't it? It is. It is. Um, yeah, I think the story you're referencing, um, you know, you do six months of this academy and this buildup, you know, and they tell you all of these great things that you're going to do. Um, and you're going to go out here and you're going to change the world and you're going to touch people. You're going to fight crime and foot chases and car pursuits and all of these glorious things. And then, you know, you do that for six months and then you go out to this FTO program. And during this FTO program, you know, ours at the time was 24 weeks. Um, they're building you up for, for this profession and for the next 25 years, 20 years, 25 years now. But they're building you up to be able to go out there and um, kind of serve the public and everything. So I think the story you're referencing is that first day I'm sitting at the roll call table and I'm antsy because it's my time now. You know, um, I get to go out there. I'm not sitting with anybody anymore. Nobody's in the patrol car. Um, I get to decide what I do. So Sarge goes through roll call and he's got his papers and he, he reads everything and he tells us what we have to do. And as soon as he's done talking, I jump up and I run out the door and it's time to save the world. So I get into my patrol car and I put my seatbelt on. And, and, and the first thing in my mind is, you know, I'm going to stop somebody. I pull out onto the busy highway and I see a car and it's swerving all over the road. And, and, and I said, this is it. This is why I signed up to be the police to stop crime. You know, so I, I turn my lights and siren on and I go to stop the car and it doesn't stop, <laughs> you know, uh, and I'm like, well, wait a minute. You know, this isn't how it was in the police academy. 
every car that I had stopped up to this point, they pulled right over. Right. <laughs> this one doesn't stop. I'm like, this is what they told me about in the academy. So I'm on there. I'm, I'm on the radio. I'm telling them radio, be advised. I have a car. They're failing to yield. They're not stopping. You know, is it stolen? You know, all of these things And the car, you know, it's doing it's doing a high rate of speed of about 25 miles an hour. <laughs> um, and I'm behind it. And, you know, I'm hitting my siren and, you know, the panic in my voice just is rising. And um, finally, after about 10 miles, I mean, I've been chasing this thing um, and I'm ready. It pulls over and I get my gun and I start approaching to the car. Driver, put your hands outside the window. Do it now. Do it now. Everything that I've been taught, I'm so ready to take this person into custody. And I, I, I get up to the car and I look into the window and it's a 90 year old lady. <laughs> And she can't hear me. She's in her own little world. She can't see out the mirror. Um, And and I said, sweetheart, where are you going? And she says, oh, I'm just trying to go home. And I I knew then that my my career in policing was going to be a different one. Um, You know, everybody had shown up. Everybody's like, so for weeks, you know, they're giving me a hard time at the roll call table. They're bantering. They're like, you know, you're really going to save the world with good job. (laughs) Um, And, you know, one old lady at a time. You know, that's where I'm at. So. And, and the worst part of that is when you got to get on the air as a radio, you can cancel all of the backup. Yeah. <laughs> we got yes. And no one's in custody. Because when you, yeah. you say no one's in custody, everybody knows you got a dud. Yeah, you got a dud, you know. And um, so, yeah, um, she, she made it home that night, and that's all that matters. <laughs> well, and you made it home that night, so that's important, that's right. too. That's but, right. but, but, but I, I, I kind of want to build, if we could, talking about the training part. And, and one of the things you talked about right there was how your voice sounded. Because what was going on, not just in your mind, but with the rest of your body, when, when, this, when this car's not pulling over, what were you feeling at that point? Sure. I mean, in, in years later, you find out, you know, through critical incidents and training and that, you know, your blood pressure and your your heart rate and everything is rising, you know, um, just just putting on your uniform. What a lot of people don't realize is when police officers strap that Velcro on, when they hear that cinching of Velcro, when they put their uniform on, when they step away from their families that day, when they get in their car and they're heading to work and they turn their radio on, their heart rate automatically goes up. And it goes up extensively from normal. You wonder why police officers have heart problems and, and, and the life expectancy is so low. It's because of this constant, you know, wave and flow uh, of these calls. So um, you do that for 20 years and, and, and we end up having problems if we don't take care of ourselves. So, yeah, I mean, you, you have to train yourself and you have to be deliberate and intentional about when you train, when you're in the gym, you have to be intentional about you better practice calling off on that radio and keeping your voice calm so that someone can understand you. Because when when we get into stressful situations and I've seen police officers do it a lot of times when we start screaming on that radio, no one's coming if they can't understand you. So it's 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 a part that we often neglect in training. You know, we, we talk about stress inoculation and can you make decisions, but can you communicate effectively to the other people are coming is equally important. Well, it, it's one of the things that I like to talk about in some of the training that I provide. And uh, how often have we heard that officer call out 
and you can hear their voices way up there. And then dispatch comes back the same way. Unit calling. And pretty soon it's almost like a dueling banjo and everybody's increasing in intensity and nothing's getting done except for people are getting jacked up on both sides of the radio. Uh, Brent, uh, the sergeant, he may be, he's a little bit young. He may be too young to remember this, but, but you remember the North Hollywood bank robbery back in the late nineties where the two, two dudes go in all armored up with the automatic uh, rifles and everything. I remember that. Yeah. I've seen, the, I've seen the video. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you, you probably saw it in reruns because you were too young right. to watch yeah. it when it first came out, oh, right? I saw it. Yeah. <laughs> there was when you go back and you listen to it. There's a portion in there where there's an officer who's hit, and he talks on the radio just like you did. Radio, I'm bleeding out. I'm bleeding out. And this dispatcher comes back on, and she's like, "A copy. You've been hit. Hang in there. We're coming." And when he came back on the radio. Man, everything had come down. And, and truth be told, she probably saved his life that day because if you keep getting amped up like that, bad things are going to start happening to you physically. So that's a great point. But at some point, though, something significant had to happen. Tell me about the first shooting you responded to. Yeah. So, you know, the first one of the first shootings that I responded to, you know, in Louisville, unfortunately, we're a community that's plagued with shootings, you know, um, so it wouldn't be uncommon for officers very early in their career, even the first or second night. Fast forwarding. I didn't tell this in the um, talk you were a part of, Mike, but um, my first night as a sergeant, I made six shootings on my in my division in one um, shift in one shift. We had six shootings. You know, I go in now as a sergeant preparing to talk to my guys, preparing to have roll call training. I'm going to do things differently. You know, I kind of have my ideas written out on a piece of paper of how I want to lead these people. And I, and everybody walks into the roll call room and, you know, I have my uniform and they knew me from training and they knew where it was going to be. They all sit down and tones go off with everybody goes running out. And I'm like, I didn't get to have my first roll call, <laughs> you know? Um, so the, and, and, that, and that's policing, but the one that you're referencing. So I had a beat partner who very early in my career, within the first couple months, a gentleman had been shooting at houses, just driving by shooting at houses randomly, peppering them with uh, an AR 15. Um, and we got dispatched to this and um, the, my beat partner got behind him. And whenever he got behind him, the guy exited the vehicle and started shooting rapidly at his car, striking his car multiple times to the voice thing. Um, this officer screamed on the radio, you know, help me, help me, help me, you know, basically. And the, the dispatcher asked him if he was hit and, you know, to talk to his stress. His response was, I don't know, you know, um, which is common. Right. We see that, you know, with adrenaline and everything, officers don't know sometimes if they're actually struck. So as, as I'm responding to this um, the, to this run, you know, I'm familiar with the area. I grew up in the area. I thought that the individual might run on foot through the back of a of a school. And um, he did. Um, and I came around the corner and there's some other cars there. And um, I, I accelerate because I see the rifle and he has the rifle and he's already shot at the officers. And I, and I thought at the time, um, there's no reason for me to get out of the car to address this person. I have a 10,000 pound weapon that I plan to use. So I accelerated. I felt something soon after that I had never felt before. And it was my car bottom out because I hit a barrier in the parking spot and blew out all four tires. 
Um, so I hit it at such a high rate of speed that all four tires are now flat. I'm in the middle of this field and rolling out of the car because the suspect's looking at me. And that was the first time in my career where my old FTO pulled up beside me. And as I got out of the car, he said for the first time, Whit, be careful. And that's where we started um, whenever you saw me at NAFTO. And this idea of be careful kind of started in my mind. Well, well, well t- tell me about that idea, because uh, I've been in the training business for a long time. Uh, I've been I've been a law enforcement trainer for over two decades now, and, and I never heard it put the way that you did. And it made me go back and cons- reconsider a lot of the things that that I had done before. So tell me what you mean by by this concept of be careful. What did it make you think? So obviously, when we tell someone to be careful in any aspect of life, when you tell your loved one to be careful whenever they go out the door, part of that is because you care about them. And part of that is because you have no control or training over what they're about to encounter. Right. As they leave their home, we have to, you know, give ourselves up to the fact that we can't control what's going to happen to them. And in oftentimes in policing, we haven't trained them for what may happen to them. Um, so when we tell people to be careful, sometimes it may mean I care about you, but sometimes it actually means I haven't trained you for what you're about to go into. And in and, and that day, that be careful to me sent a message that I wasn't ready for this yet. Um, and I didn't know how to handle the situation. I was a 22 year old kid. You know, I wasn't in the military. So that that resonated with me. And, and it's kind of extended throughout my career. And what was the end result of that that call that night after you, you know, did, did, did the deed to the, the patrol car there? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, to, to what police do. Right. I mean, multiple law enforcement officers wrecked on the way to the scene, you know, trying to get there. But ultimately, we were able to subdue the subject. Canine bit the subject. I put my handcuffs on the subject as I was the, the first one there. And as police would have it, you can put twenty dollars on the ground anywhere around the police and it will always be there. But I still have not got those handcuffs back. That I put on the suspect that night. Twenty dollars on the ground, not today, I not today. That's right, not today. But <laughs> you said something earlier, and then you kind of reiterated um, just a minute ago that uh, you didn't have anyone in your family that was in law enforcement. You weren't in military. How do you think that affected you, as opposed to uh, other officers coming up that had various family members in military or law enforcement? That did have like an advantage where they could? Go ask questions where maybe you didn't have access to that. Yeah. Who do you talk yeah. to? Um, who understands? Who can relate? I, my, my father was a, was a factory worker and later owned his own business. You know, he, he didn't learn how to shoot a weapon until after I became a police officer and I taught him, you know. So um, the, being involved in, you know, very critical situations and soon after being involved in a, in a, in a shooting myself, it's very different, you know, um, and the wellness aspect has been something that I, I've hit on in a lot of these conversations and a lot of these talks that, you know, when we talk about training, 
wellness has to be a part of that for these officers. You know, I usually tell we have to invest in people who invest in people. Right. And we have to protect the people who safeguard people. If you don't, they're not going to make it through this career. And what I found whenever I was in a shooting 12 years ago was that we didn't do a very good job then. I really through reading and processing and and um, I kind of worked myself through. I won't call them demons, but I worked myself through those issues. A lot of people would refer to them as as demons. But I think we're getting better. Um, we're definitely on this police department way beyond. Uh, and we do a lot for people when they're involved in critical incidents. I heard uh, Lieutenant Colonel Grossman talk about it one time. And he says that one of the things that soldiers and law enforcement struggle with is when those demons occur. It's shameful to us because we don't we don't know at that point that others have experienced the same thing, that it's normal to have those. And it's only when we start talking about that and making it, hey, listen, you know what? If you're in combat and, and an artillery shell lands near you, uh, there's a good chance you may wet your pants. And it's okay because that's your body kicking in to make sure that you're safe. But if it happens to you and you don't know that, it's something you try to hide from your foxhole buddy. And we've too long in law enforcement. I think we've tried to hide it. So what what is Louisville doing then to, to address this? What, what, what are you guys doing? Because you said you guys are, are way far ahead. What have you done intentionally to make things better in this realm? So what we know and what is predictable in law enforcement, looks like the military, is you are going to be injured in this profession. You know, you may not be physically injured, but you will be in some place mentally injured throughout this job. Uh, In a lot of ways, really, you you have a front row seat to the world and and everything good that it brings and definitely everything bad that it brings because we're there on people's worst day. Right. Right. So um, we, we looked at in Louisville. Now we have a full time wellness unit. Um, That wellness unit is staffed with, um, I mean, things like fitness advisors financial advisors, understanding police are horrible with their money. And that becomes a stressor on us. And we end up doing what? We end up working off duty jobs and working 60 and 70 hours and neglecting our families. So we have financial advisors on staff. We have uh, full-time chaplains. We have full-time counselors, full-time psychologists, you have full-time medical doc, a health and safety officer that, you know, is around, you know, all of the time. Our peer support team is very robust. Um, if you're involved in the shooting now, they'll be there within five minutes. They're going to take you. They're going to talk to you about the, the process, make sure that you're comfortable with the process. Because in a lot of ways, the altercation, right, the critical incident isn't what leaves police officers scarred, right? It is the internal process that happens afterwards, right? It's the litigation. It's the the putting their families through the media. It's the, you know, having to worry about, is my family going to be okay? Now I can't work this off-duty job. You know, now I, I can't go back in with my platoon for a while. I don't have these relationships, this brotherhood um, and sisterhood. That very much is what scars our officers. So having this full-time wellness unit now, the department is very much prioritized mental wellness, but also establishing that it's okay in the academy. So from your orientation day, you will meet our counselors. And throughout the academy, you're going to have opportunities to talk to those counselors. Um, And it's going to be forced, right? Because what we understand is that provides some cover for, for, for recruits and officers that if I say, hey, listen, yearly, you have to go talk to the doc, then it's not, oh, 
Witt has to go talk to the doc. He must be, you know, he, he's not tough, right? No, everybody goes and talks to the doc, right? Um, so it provides some cover for him. And it might just be you coming in and saying, you know, I'm okay. You know, and it might be you coming in and saying, man, I'm glad it's my time to reach out. Let me tell you about how my last year has been. And I think we have to normalize that more. At Virtual Academy, we're helping our clients build better prepared public safety professionals by offering high-level training provided by engaging national experts. With hundreds of hours of training available instantly, Virtual Academy offers the functionality your officers need so they can train as their schedules permit. Find out how Virtual Academy can meet the needs of your agency today. Visit virtualacademy.com for a complete list of courses, training resources, and more. Virtual Academy, because you deserve more. We had uh, Joe Willis uh, on the podcast here a few weeks ago. Uh, Joe happened to be at NAPTO, too. He was uh, the closing speaker. But we were talking about one of the campaigns that First Help has going called So What? You know, so what if you need help? You, you know what? You're human. You've seen bad things. And and you mentioned this earlier, uh, and, and I just want to uh, kind of expound on a little bit. Uh, it's not just the shootings or the use of force or the bad things that you personally see, but seeing my brothers and sisters go through some of those thing, same things also has an impact on me. You talked about your first shift as a sergeant. You know, you weren't involved in those shootings, but you were there. And that also starts to wear on you. Have you found that to be true as well? Yeah, it does. And, and, and even more so. Right. You know, um, we very much like to have control, you know, during my time at working narcotics, I would have never told my wife, this is the warrant we're about to execute. And this is who we're about to execute it on. And this is how dangerous they are. I would just text and say, hey, how are you? You know, um, et cetera, et cetera. Just to have a normal conversation, because you can very much face what's on the other side of the door. In a lot of ways, we've trained for it and we've come to peace with um, that this is what we do. It's harder for them. It's harder for families at home because to them, it's an unknown, right? It's They're not in control, right? And as a sergeant, I think in a lieutenant, a major, no matter a commander, no matter how high up you go, I think you start to lose that control because you remove yourself from the doing aspect of the job. And now you're more in the management aspect of the job. You know, in a lot of ways we can handle ourselves being involved in something, but I can't handle letting one of my people, one of my guys or girls go out and me knowing that I may have had an uh, ability and opportunity to help and make sure that something bad didn't happen to them. And I failed to prevent that. So it's a constant worrying game. I actually talked to a class today about I remember being in a lot of car pursuits and never thought about the aftermath of the car pursuit. But as soon as I became a sergeant, I thought about the aftermath first, you know, of, hey, listen, I'm going to cancel the pursuit, not because I don't trust you, but because I know everything that comes after. I, I know how this ends and, and I want to protect you from that. And, and I got to throw uh, throw something out there to a part of the law enforcement family, the first responder family that I think that is often forgotten in these things. And, and that's our folks in dispatch, yeah. because you, you talk about that lack of control. I have to get on the radio and send these people to something I know is dangerous. And really, once I do that, it's like a parent letting go of their kid. You know, when they grow up and they move out of the house, I want to protect them. 
and, and they lose that control. And, and I think that I think we're starting to see some of the issues that we've seen on the sworn side of things now starting to affect our dispatchers. And that's another group I think is a profession we need to address. Yeah, I think that, you know, the professional staff within law enforcement, whether it be dispatchers or your, the clerk at the, the, the office, you, you really have to cherish those people. Right. It's it makes such a world of difference. We have a a great team in Louisville um, of dispatchers and those guys and gals down there. I mean, my hat's off to them anytime because they really are that, that guiding voice, that calmness that, and they're the, they're the constant, right? Our professional staff within law enforcement, they are the consistency in an apartment like Louisville where you have 1200 officers now down to around a thousand. But when you have, you know, that many officers, people come and go are patrol officers for three years and they go to become detectives. They are a detective for a few years and they move on to something else. They get promoted, but the dispatchers are there and they're, they're, they're there no matter who the patrol officer is. And no matter how many years the, our clerks, our HR department, the mental staff, the mental health staff, um, these people are the constant. They're the consistency within departments. And we, we have to do a better job of realizing that um, their mental health and, and their wellness is just as important as as officers. If we don't take care of them, then how can we expect them to help others? Right. We have to fill their cup before they can fill somebody else's cup. But but you moved on to narcotics. How was narcotics for you? Uh, it was good. It was. Not, it no, was wait, a- wait, wait. Let me clarify. Not using narcotics. You were assigned to narcotics. All right. Yeah. The, the, but not today. The, I. The, the first part's frowned upon. Um, you, you find that they test you a lot more. <laughs> These are random drug tests that police departments have become a lot less random yeah. when you move into those units. Boy, me again. Big yeah. surprise. Yeah. Big surprise. Me again. You know, it, it's a lot of what I wanted out of policing. Because I grew up in that area of the town that, you know, a lot of my high school classmates took the wrong turn. I, I, grew, I grew up in the south end of Louisville, not in a wealthy area. I, I talked about again, my parents were factory workers. Um, we didn't have a lot. So in turn, I hung out with people who didn't have a lot. And, and a lot of them, you know, went different paths. I joke around with some of the assistant chief who was at uh, or deputy chief who was at the um the conference that you you probably heard at the beginning. He went to a private school here in Louisville. And I tell him all the time, like when you go to your reunion, right, you didn't make it because people you graduated with are doctors and lawyers and politicians. And you're a cop. Like when I go to my reunion, I made it like, you know, I'm the Mac daddy at my reunion right there. I, I, I made it out, you know, um, but but very much. um Narcotics was what I wanted out of policing because you were constantly talking to people, building relationships, bridging relationships and moving from one piece to another, you know, um, talking to people no matter it doesn't change. Right. It doesn't matter if you're talking to the richest person in the world or a business owner or you're talking to a street level narcotics dealer. Everybody wants something and they're willing to give something to get that something. It's like um, a big marketplace. So right. some people are dealing in information, some are dealing in drugs, but everybody's got something to sell. Everybody's got something to sell and they'll buy it for, you know, so if you can talk to people, if you can build relationships, if you can grow your informant base and your ability, then, you know, they'll really grow your career um, and, and they will. So narcotics was a good bridging point 
for me from patrol to um, training um, because I very much found out how to massage a message and, and really sell it. And, and that's what you're doing in training, too, is you have to take sometimes you have to take a policy that, you know, a higher up is given and you have to figure out how to deliver that to a group of officers who are going to call BS on it and, and do that effectively. And in a lot of ways, narcotics helped me get to that point. But because of your your background in narcotics, a couple of years ago, there was this big movement to defund the police. And Louisville, because it's a big metro area, what was like most metro areas where you guys had some riots, had some protests that were going on in which your officers had to stand the line. Uh, you weren't standing the line, at least not in the traditional sense. Tell, tell me about your assignment during uh, those times in, in Louisville. Yeah, so Louisville became, um, for a lot of reasons, Louisville became one of the epicenters of um the, the, the social unrest um, that took place in 2020 and police officers were called daily um, for a long period of time to put their vest on, put their uniform on and go out. And in a lot of ways, nightly, the city was up for grabs, you know, and I commend every officer who stood there and, and, and took a, a, a beratement in a lot of ways. You know, it was tough. It, it, it was tough because what on one side you had a community who was frustrated. Um, you had a community who that felt um, that their voices wasn't weren't being heard. And on the other side, you, you had a group of law enforcement officers who just wanted to make sure that law and order was upheld, that, you know, you're you're allowed to, you know, to protest and you're you're allowed to voice your disdain with maybe the way things are going on in the country. But you're not allowed to burn buildings down by doing it. And during that, I wasn't pretty enough. Um, they, they, had, they, they, they had a popularity contest and they, they sized everyone up and they said, uh, we can't put this guy in a uniform. So I was in the crowd. I was, I was embedded in the crowd as a, um, intelligence unit to really look at the, uh, ebb and flow of what was going on in the crowd and then give information back to the boots on the ground on where they needed to move their resources and, um, how, uh, how fast they needed to move those resources. And w- would it be safe to characterize what you were doing was prevention activity so things didn't get bad? Uh, I want you to be able to voice your, your your displeasure, but I don't want things to get so amped up because where, where we lose sight of this is just like we talked about the police officer where, where their stress level gets way up here when they get into a pursuit and they start doing and acting in ways that they normally wouldn't. Same thing happens when we have these types of events. And if you can prevent that, then it's better for everybody. It's better, better for the officers and it's better for the people that are there. Would that be a, a fair way to characterize what you were doing? Public safety is at the forefront of what we do, you know, keeping people safe, you know, upholding the Constitution and enforcing laws are are really what at the hearts of law enforcement. And, and by embedding people into the crowd, you're really keeping people safe because by and large, 95, 97, 98 percent of people that were there across the country were there to voice their opinion, to protest, to um, use their First Amendment right, to to speak about their cause, right? Um, there, was a, there was a small percentage that were inciting 
um, riots in, in a lot of the areas, you know, in order to identify those individuals to keep the public safe, the people who are out there protesting the right way, but also to keep the city safe and to keep officers safe, sometimes embedding plain clothes units, intelligence units in the crowd is the best way that we can, um, the best way that we can keep those people safe. I get a little bit teary eyed, to be honest with you. Uh, when I think back to listening to you talk, you, you, you addressed the view, the perspective that you had of your brothers and sisters from your from your vantage point in the crowd. I remember you describing the look that they had. And if you wouldn't mind sharing with our listeners, what was your perspective of your brothers and sisters as they were standing on that line? Yeah. So, you know, understanding at this time in 2020, if you take yourself back there mentally, right, what was going on? Right. We had the social movement that was going on, but we also had COVID because of that. I, I, I mean, I had a mask up to here and, and down, you know, so this is available to officers. So they didn't they very much, you know, in tunnel vision, didn't know who I was either. Right. Because I'm in the crowd looking at them chanting in a lot of ways, holding signs, blending in. So these officers weren't going to act differently, knowing that Sergeant Witt standing in front of them. You know, to them, I'm just another community protester standing in front of them, you know, et cetera. And whenever I looked at them and, and in a lot of ways, it was admirable to see them stand there because most of them just had a look of bewilderment. You know, they were they were shocked that this was happening, because when, when we go through the academy, there are a lot of things they teach you. Right. We, we practice driving at high rates of speed. We practice shooting our firearm. We practice uh, being involved in stressful situations and fights and ground fighting and foot chases and all of these things. How do you practice watching your city burn? You know, how do you practice people heaving drinks at you and spitting at you and throwing obscenities your way and the bewilderment that, you know, night in and night out for 15, 16, 17 hours a day. I mean, these officers were not they were going home for six or seven hours and turning around and coming right back. And they were standing right on that line. And in a lot of ways, we saw numerous officers leave this profession. Right. Because at the time. When you're trying to triage and you're just trying to, you know, you, you, you have a police department to run, you have a city to protect, you have normal runs to make. You know, at the time, it took us a very long time before we realized that we needed to start prioritizing officers mental wellness, you know, and their physical wellness. Understand, Mike, we were out there for three and four months. At one point in time, officers worked 29 days in a row of 17 hours. They were going home for five hours, getting a shower, putting it back on and coming back and standing on that line. They they ate bag lunches for 27 days straight. That's a lot. Not only were normal runs going on at work, but normal stuff's going on at the house, too. And, and all that stuff gets neglected because there's no time to get it done. Yeah. Bewilderment was the word that, that stuck with me. But I have to ask you this. As you were standing out there and you were watching them out there. Uh, did the phrase be careful come into your head? Yeah, I'd been in training, right? I'd been in training. And in somewhat, you asked it earlier about being a sergeant. I felt responsible. You know, I felt responsible because we were asking these people to do things that we had never asked them to do before. You know, and, and you just thought, be careful. 
you know, be careful for what you're about to get involved in. You know, policing is a very, you know, in a lot of ways, an individualized profession. Um, think about you're in a patrol car by yourself. You're you, a lot of times you're going hands on by yourself. You're handling runs by yourself. And now there's hundreds of you out there and, and you don't really practice those team tactics and, and understand that every individual thing that happens. Right. If one officer on the line says something to a protester that's misconstrued, if one officer on the line touches a protester whenever they probably shouldn't. If one officer on the line does something, it affects everyone. So this idea of be careful was that I know we haven't trained you guys to do this. But what I can say is, is by and large, they did a great job. You know, police officers do what they do in novel situations. They adapt and overcome. And and I couldn't have been prouder to be a part of this police department, um, knowing that that's what they did. There was a price to it, though. I'll let you describe the picture. But there was a picture you popped up during your presentation uh, from the the table at the training academy. Can you describe that to our, our listeners and what that table and what was on it, what it represented? At the start of this, we had around twelve hundred and fifty officers. And through this time, people decided they didn't want to be a part of this department anymore and they didn't want to be a part of this profession anymore. Um, And there was a lot that went into that. I won't say that's only because of the stresses from the protests, but it was also, you know, understand at the time we were under contract negotiations. We had retirements. But whatever the reason, in about a three month period, we had 200 people that left this job. And that's a lot. I mean, that's a lot. 15 percent of your department leaves in a three, four month period. And what was happening was is. We didn't because we were so overtasked and we had tasked people with so much that we we didn't have a proper collection point for when people left the department. So what would happen is, is they would come to training, you know, and and I was running dual roles at the time for half the day. I was going out and being embedded in the crowd. And for half the day, I was still at training you know, um, teaching, you know, being a part of the COVID response team, doing numerous things. And what would happen is these people would come, they would come to training and they would have these large bags and in their bags, they would have all of their gear and everything that they had amassed throughout their, their career. And they were just laying these vests on this table. And the picture that I showed at NAFTO was a picture of body armor. And it was probably, you know, a hundred vests that were stacked up because we hadn't had time to put them away. And what that picture signifies to me is that we didn't do a great job of taking care of people. You know, that many people kind of laid it down and said, not doing no more. And, and if you lived it and if you were there and you watched these people and you saw the hugs and the look of, I'm sorry that um, people had whenever they came in, it was, it was a lot. I can't imagine what that would be like because it's almost me personally, if I had to go in and I just got to that point, I'd feel like I failed. I failed my brothers and my sisters. I failed the community that I swore this oath to protect. And that's something that's going to weigh on them long term, too, is when we talk about health. You know, that's something we have to worry about as well. But uh, we're, we're going to be wrapping things up. But I have a couple questions I want to ask you on the training side. OK, if you were afforded the opportunity to be speaker number one on day number one of a police academy, 
You were going to talk to the people that are coming in this profession right now, and you had this very limited time. What would be the message that you would deliver so that they could start their career off literally on day one with that knowledge or with that thought? What do you think you would choose there? Be careful. Um, and, and that's what I would tell them is be careful. Be careful to not go through this profession and learn every day. Be careful to not go through this profession and continue to train. Be careful not to go through this profession and not make relationships with people. Understanding that we have each other, but we also have the communities that we serve. And you have to be careful not to become so isolated and so insulated into our little bubble that we're in. We can't be penetrated and, you know, that we're law enforcement. And I think when that happens, right, it, that, that is the deterioration of our mental health. Um, when you feel like it's everybody against us, that we start to deteriorate because what happens whenever us isn't here anymore? Right. What happens when retirement happens? What happens when you're involved in a critical incident and you don't get to come to work? What happens when you're suspended? And then it's everyone against us. But then it very much is becomes everyone against me. So my message would be to be careful, you know, that you don't become that person, that you continue to learn that you continue to make relationships, that you continue to be a part of your communities, that you continue to grow. And that, you know, this is the greatest job in the world. No matter what anyone tells you, no matter what anyone, you know, what they put on TV or this is the best job that you can do. Um, I still believe that every day. I still come to work every day, loving this profession. And, and, I, and I still c- come to work every day and tell myself, no matter how good my career is, be careful um, because it can be taken away. And then one last question. Uh, you, you get first day, first speaker at every single train the trainer that's out there. Basic instructor school. What message would you deliver to the people who are going to be training the people that are coming into this profession and are in this profession? What would you tell them? Be intentional. Be dialed in. You're responsible. You are responsible to train those individuals to go out and to be able to encounter anything. You are responsible to be able to train those officers to go out and treat the public the right way. You're responsible to teach those officers to go out and and be proportionate in their use of force, to have a knowledge of use of force, to have a knowledge of communication. You're responsible. So so be deliberate and be intentional. You're the only trainer they're going to get, you know, otherwise they're going to learn from each other. So if if there's ever a time when you feel like you're waking up and you're like, man, I really don't want to do this today. Get out, get, 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 get out because they suffer because of your lack of ability to do it. So be intentional and understand that you're responsible for the future of this profession and you're responsible for the safety of your people. Haphazard action begets haphazard results. And that's what we get when our trainers aren't intentional. Brent, I just have to tell you, man, I told you I was excited about the perspective uh, that the Sarge has here on the profession, on the events that, that have shaped law enforcement over the past couple of years. And he did not disappoint me. No, I, I did some some background research before we started recording today. Sergeant Witt, I have to say you, you've got some really level headed insights where it's just like if we follow this plan. We're going to have some great outcomes. And I commend you for the training that you're doing for, for officers and all, all the work you're doing in Louisville. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. And I love what you guys are doing. 
I think the more that we can get messages and show our side and, and really the the human behind the badge, you know, the between it, I, I appreciate what you guys are doing. And that's what we want to do. Yeah. We want to bring that human element in and uh, we want to hear from from all of you out there who are listening. If, you, if you'd like to share your story, if you'd like to be a guest um, between the lines of Virtual Academy, you can contact us. You can uh, email us a brief summary about yourself or the case that you want to talk about. Our email address is between the lines at virtualacademy.com. You'll find that email on our website along with all of our social media accounts and uh, past episodes it's at between the lines with virtualacademy.com fantastic episode some some great insights today mike and uh, man i really enjoyed this one i appreciate you letting me be a part of this sarge thanks for coming keep doing what you're doing thanks for all that you've done uh thanks for the difference you're making not only now but in the future of this profession i appreciate it thanks guys